We invite the rest of us to turn, would you please, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus once again, chapter 4 this morning. It's going to be really helpful for you to have your Bibles open in front of you this morning. Exodus chapter 4. And before we look to God's Word together, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, every time I stand here, I feel this combination of excitement and weakness. And so I ask for your help. Father, take your word now and give it to your people. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin uh, this morning by asking a very simple but also a very weighty question. What happens when you resist God? I mean, given who God is, sovereign, all-powerful, what happens when we resist him, when we push back? I mean, you'd think that could be a dangerous business, right? Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've experienced that personally. Many people in the Bible did that and found out what happens when you resist God. So, what does happen? Well, it depends. Because, painting with very broad strokes for a moment here, there are, there are two very different kinds of resistance to God, and we're going to see that in these next chapters in the book of Exodus. There's a resistance that can kind of be the result of weakness. It grows out of our, our fears and the doubts that can occupy our hearts. We're going to see that kind of resistance in Moses today, and we'll see how God responds to that. But there is also a resistance that grows out of outright defiance, it's active rebellion. It, it is the result of a will that is set against God, and we'll see that kind of resistance next week in Pharaoh, and we'll see how God responds to that. Two very different kinds of things happen in response to these two different types of resistance, and this morning we want to take an up-close and personal look at that first type. That's what we'll see here in Exodus chapters 4 through seven. But I want to begin by going back for a moment to chapter 3. Look back at the end of chapter 3 at verse 16. This is God speaking to Moses, and here's what he says. Moses, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that... He will let you go. So God promises. Did you see that there in verse 17? I promise that I will bring you up. 
And so what we see there at the end of chapter 3 is God's promise and him preparing Moses for what will happen. Here's how the elders of Israel will respond. They will listen. Here's how Pharaoh will respond. He will not let you go. Here's what I will do. I will stretch out my mighty hand. So here God speaks this really clear word to Moses. And how does Moses respond? With resistance. In fact, six distinct points of resistance. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I want us to just see what's here. We'll walk through these six rounds of interchange between Moses and God and just observe. Maybe we'll see a little bit of ourselves this morning, what we're like. We'll certainly see what God is like. And then, having seen what's here in our Bibles, we'll close this morning with some practical, I hope, helpful application. So, how does Moses respond to these words that God has spoken? Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you, I mean, here's Moses' first point of resistance. They won't believe me or listen to me, he says. Now remember, God has just said they will listen. Look back up at verse 18 of chapter 3. God says, and they will listen to your voice. And now in chapter 4, here Moses says, they won't listen. I know better than you know, God. So what does God do? Verse 2. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he, God, said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That you may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. What is God doing here? Well, he is providing for Moses some, some confirming signs to strengthen his faith and to help him to go forward with confidence. And these signs that God gives, these are not just some random signs. I want you to think back with me for a moment, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God was speaking words of judgment. And in the midst of those words of very just judgment, God said something that would have profound significance for human history. He's actually speaking to the serpent, Satan himself, the deceiver, and he said these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And from that point on, there has been war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. It's the story of human history, and it will be all the way to the end. We saw it last week, remember, in chapters 1 and 2, that first king of Egypt attempting to kill all the male babies of the people of God. The serpent-like Pharaoh just hell-bent on destroying God's people. And we'll see it again with this new Pharaoh, 40 years later, do you know from your history classes what was on the crown that was worn by the kings of Egypt? 
Do you remember? It was a raised cobra, a serpent rising up in this kind of threatening pose, ready to strike, and the king's scepter in Egypt was often in the shape of a cobra. It, it was this symbol representing power and sovereignty and threat to anyone who would oppose them. Now, we don't read that here in the text, but Moses would have been very familiar with that. He grew up with all that symbolism all around him in the royal house. So when God says, throw your staff on the ground and it becomes a serpent, and then when God says, I want you to reach out and grab that serpent by the tail, and that serpent becomes a staff, an instrument in God's hands to accomplish God's will. This is not just some random sign. This is full of meaning. God wants Moses to know that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in all of his opposition is going to be a mere instrument in the hands of God. He may look frightening, that king of Egypt, but he is no match for God. And it's the same with the other two signs. Leprosy was a very common disease in Egypt. God is saying, I will deliver my people from the scourge of Egypt. The Nile the very source of life and livelihood for all of Egypt. I mean, to destroy the Nile was to destroy Egypt itself. And in God's hands, the Nile would become a river of death. You see what God is doing? He's reassuring Moses. He speaks to him and he gives him these signs to strengthen him so that he will trust God and have faith. But now look at verse 10. Here's the second round. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I mean, here's Moses' second point of resistance. I'm not gifted, God. I don't have what it takes. I mean, here is God telling Moses to go tell the world's most powerful leader to do something that that leader had no intention of doing, and Moses knew that his own abilities were not up to the task. I, I'm not eloquent. You can just feel Moses wobbling. So how does God respond to this resistance? Verse 11, Then the Lord said, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I mean, here's God, gentle, patient, but firm, reminding Moses of some very basic truth, truth meant to strengthen him and fortify him. I'm, I'm the one who made your mouth, Moses. But not only does he remind him of truth there in verse 11, but he reassures him in verse 12, I'm going to be with you. You don't have to be eloquent. I'm going to be right there helping you talk. Please notice, God does not try to convince Moses that he's more eloquent than he thinks he is. You know, like some well-intentioned friend telling you, well, no, you're really smart. No, you really are gifted. And he doesn't downplay the circumstances to try to convince Moses that it's going to be easier than it looks. No, he tells him, he tells him the only thing that mattered, which was that he would be with him. It's all that mattered. Do you see what God is saying? Moses, it's not about your eloquence. It's not about you at all. It's me that's going to make this happen, and I'll be with you. Do you trust me? Do you have faith in me? I mean, God speaks this amazing truth to Moses to, to strengthen him and to fortify his faith. Round three, verse 13. But he said, Moses, he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Here's Moses' third point of resistance. Please send somebody else. I don't care what you say, God. I don't want to do this. Please leave me alone. Please find someone else. Now, something is revealed right here 
The longer this conversation goes on, the more clear it becomes that Moses simply does not want to do what God is telling him to do. So, how does God respond? Verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. What exactly is it that makes God angry? I mean, he's been gentle and patient up to this point, but apparently there is something here in Moses' words in verse 13, and it's true, right? Something else has shown up. Moses is not just expressing his fear and doubt. He's expressing unwillingness. There is a resistance of his will here, and still, what does God do? He supplies. Look at the second part of verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And not only does God supply a spokesman, but he supplies something else, verse 17, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs, which we know is going to be really important and it's going to represent God's power with him. It's not magic, it's a reminder. And then, right here, we come to one of, if not the most, interesting moments in Exodus. This is round four. Moses is now on his way back to Egypt. With him is his wife and his sons. Remember, he's been out in the desert of Midian for 40 years. He has a family now. Look with me at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Wait, did I read that right? The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Look back with me for just a moment to verse 19. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. I mean, just when it seemed safe for Moses to return to Egypt, now suddenly God is seeking to put him to death. What is this? I mean, what possible reason could there be for God to attack the man whom he has just called to be the deliverer of his people? Well, it doesn't come right out and tell us, but we can figure it out from the following verses. Look at verse 25. Then Zipporah, that's his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, God, let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Here's what's happening. Remember back in Genesis chapter 17, God gave Abraham a sign, the sign of circumcision, which was to distinguish Abraham and his family from all of the other nations. It was this, this non-negotiable mark of being a part of God's people, the ones to whom God had made his promises and entered into covenant relationship with. And Moses knew that. And he knew the importance of it. And he had neglected it with his very own sons. Maybe, we don't know, maybe he thought things were different now. Maybe there was some resistance on the part of his wife to this. We don't know, but whatever the reason, Moses was in disobedience and given the importance of this sign and given the importance of obedience, God was about to judge Moses for his flagrant disobedience. Listen, this is a whole different kind of resistance. I'm not going to do what you've told us to do. And it invites God's judgment, which is averted by the quick action of his wife. It's hard to know exactly what Zipporah's tone is there in verses 25 and 26. I've read very different interpretations, but one thing is very clear. The blood of that circumcision acted much like the blood of the Passover lamb, protecting Moses from death, Another foreshadowing of things to come right here. 
there are yet two more points of resistance from Moses. Throughout chapter 5, what we see is an escalating situation back in Egypt. As soon as Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh with their word from God, Pharaoh just doubles down. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So it's terrible. For the people of God, it's just miserable. And it all culminates with the people, the elders of the people, coming to Moses and Aaron. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And that raises Moses' fifth point of resistance to God. Verse 22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Why did you send me? You're not doing what you said you would do. You know, sometimes things don't go the way we'd hoped or expected. In fact, sometimes we do exactly what we think God wants us to do, and it turns out to be a disaster. A young couple goes to the mission field despite protests from both of their families, and when they get there, their children get sick, and one of them dies, and they have to come home. An employee acts with integrity at his company and is then passed over for a promotion because of what he did. A woman shares the gospel with her neighbor, and her neighbor doesn't want to talk to her anymore. I mean, these kinds of things happen all the time. You do what God calls you to do, and it seems to make things worse. So we begin to wonder, did I do the right thing? Or maybe God doesn't even care about what I do. When things don't work out, we can wonder if God knows what he's doing. Or sometimes we can wonder, is there really a God? That's where Moses is here. He's in serious doubt. Why did you ask me to do this, God? This isn't going the way that you led me to believe it was going to go. And how does God respond? He graciously and patiently reassures him. I, I want to read this. It's a beautiful example of something we really need to hear. Chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So therefore, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Do you hear that? I will, I will, I will. Seven times this calm, steady drumbeat of reassurance. It reminds me of our memory verse from last week. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Listen, if God is sovereign... If he's all-powerful, we can be sure that when trouble comes, he is still in control. Whether we understand it or not, he is working to accomplish his good purposes. We have to be ever so careful about deciding whether something is God's will just by looking at how it's going with us right at the moment. Things almost never turn out the way we hoped or expected, especially not at first. And what God does in that situation, what he does here with Moses and what he does over and over again with his people, he makes promises and he reminds us that he's made promises and then he speaks those promises again. I will rescue you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will never leave you or forsake you. All right, one more round. Look there at the end of chapter 6, verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Here's Moses' sixth point of resistance. How is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And what does God do? How does God respond? Please notice, God does not get snappish with Moses. He does not say, Moses, what more could you possibly want from me? I mean, I've given you a vision of myself out there in the wilderness. I've revealed to you my name, my being. I've given you all of these signs. I've reminded you of my faithfulness to the other generations. I've given you my word with these promises. What else do you want me to do? And instead... How amazingly gentle and patient he is with this failing servant. He reassures Moses yet again. Chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And then read those wonderful words in verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Finally. In verse 7, now Moses was 80 years old. You kind of want to be encouraged by something like that, don't you? All right, there's the history. That's what happened. Those six points of interchange between God and Moses. Do you remember last week I mentioned 
that as we make our way through this book of Moses, there's going to be three things that we need to watch for. We, we should be watching to see what God is like. We should be watching to see what we are like. And we should be looking for the gospel. And it seems that we need to pay attention, particularly this morning, to those first two things. What do we see about ourselves? I mean, certainly there is much to see of ourselves in Moses, wouldn't you say? What we see is that we are a people given to doubts, given to fears, given to reluctance, and we see that we are capable of direct disobedience. And even after receiving promises and reassurances and confirmations, we are still capable of second-guessing and more doubts and more fear and more reluctance. You know, I think about all that we've been through and all that we've learned in this recent season. A brother shared with me just this past week the completely unexpected effect that he experienced when there was some specific relief in his own life. Let me just read you part of his email. He says, I was reflecting recently on my response and feelings after my wife received a negative COVID test result. I felt a sudden weight lifted, a spirit of optimism return, a resurgence of energy, a realization I could reach out and kiss my wife again, and now a sense of normalcy. I was surprised at the sudden change. I hadn't realized there was a dark cloud overhead or prison walls that had been erected that had now been removed. This is a microcosm of what this whole past year has been like for people. Restrictions, putting things on hold, expect expectations dashed, isolation from friends and loved ones, limitations in relationships with those we gain strength from, particularly through the church. There have certainly been some nuggets of gold in this difficult time, but many challenges for sure. Challenging impacts that I've experienced and have been tempted to. Isolation, stagnation, apathy, despair, fear. I realize that this has had similar effect when there are other significant life experiences that some are faced with, when there are unknowns, broken or lost relationship, terminal diagnoses, life seems to stop, take a different form, and the, the inability to move on, or there is nothing to move on to, or so it seems. I think it's important for us, he says, to recognize how significant of an impact that COVID has had on us all, and more significant for some, it's as if we have all become handicapped and are suffering through various levels of how significant that handicap is. Grief, readjustment of how to try to live a normal life, temptation to hopelessness of how to recover. Can we recover? And then he says this, at Crossway, we have done well to care, preach truth, and adjust to the times. But I wonder if we would serve well to really acknowledge not just the practical impacts, but the deeper relational, mental, and spiritual impacts, struggles, and temptations facing us to a heightened extent right now, and then address those with specific, focused truth that we can all be armed with as we go to battle each day. I thought there was real wisdom there, real insight, because we're affected by things, right? We're susceptible physically, but more relationally, mentally, spiritually. None of us is immune. We're weak, vulnerable creatures, and therefore, guess what? We can have doubts and fears and reluctances, and sometimes we sin. And it's clear that God does not take our outright resistance and disobedience lightly, but it is also abundantly clear that he is a patient and compassionate father. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He deals with our sins, but he does so according to his love, Psalm 25. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses through Jesus, Hebrews chapter 4. He is patient and he reassures us over and over and over again, Exodus chapters 4 through 7. 
Friends, this is, to me, the great lesson and truth of these chapters. This is what God is like with us in our fears and doubts and reluctances. He is patient. He is persistent, no question. He will not let us go, but oh, how patient he is. He's serious. He will not ignore our sin or overlook it, but oh, how patient he is. He is full of compassion for Moses, as he is full of compassion for his people. He is not our lackey. He is the sovereign God, but oh, how patient he is. Not only does God hear the cry of the oppressed, but he understands and sympathizes with the weak and doubting and fearful. While not ignoring our sin, he keeps his word. He feels our troubles. He sets us free. He brings us close to himself, and he promises to lead us home. God, the all-powerful God, the maker of heaven and earth, who can stretch out his mighty hand and rescue his people, is also a tender father who knows our frame and deals with us ever so gently and patiently. And what is the end result? I read something this past week, I think many of you did too, something which I found to be so deeply encouraging, especially after having read of all of this fear and doubt of Moses. It was in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the great hall of fame of faith. Just listen as I read this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. That's Moses' mom's faith. But now listen. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Do you hear it? By faith, by faith, by faith. Moses? This Moses? Yes, Moses. Do you see what God did for Moses? And he'll do the very same thing for you and for me, brought there by the patient, persistent, loving hand of God who knows how to care for his weak and wobbly children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word and especially for the vision of you here. You are a great God. And we thank you for the way you care for us. We pray even this week, Lord, that we might know you, trust you, so that we might walk by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.